Let's uh, get started with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to come together as the body of Christ. Thank you for the fellowship that we have one with another and the edification that comes through that fellowship. Lord, thank you for your scriptures and specifically this morning the book of Ezekiel and the privilege we have of walking through it and talking openly about it. Pray that you would guide our minds and our hearts, that we would gain understanding that would impact our lives and the way we live in coming days. Lord, may all that we say and do in this place be pleasing to you this morning. May you be given glory and honor. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this is um, week number 32 in our study of eschatology. We're over in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, and actually this is our seventh week in these two chapters. Um, I hope in the next, this, this week and, may, well, probably this week and two more, that we'll actually finish chapters 38 and 39. And we did an overview about kind of when does this happen in history and what's going on in, in these two chapters. And in both of these chapters, we have described a war um, that's really a worldwide war. Um, all the nations gather together to attack Israel. Uh, they're led by either an individual or a title, Gog of Magog, and with him are sided many other nations. And we've looked at those. They come from the north the south, the east, and the west, all converging on Israel, planning to attack them. And we've seen described in this passage that Israel is living in securely in their land. And we know today they don't live securely. They don't live securely anywhere in Scripture until you get to the Millennial Kingdom. And as these forces come to attack, there are no walls around the cities in Jerusalem, and the people have been living securely. Uh, the waste places have been rebuilt, um, and the people have been gathered from the nations. So um, looking at all the wars a couple of weeks ago, those in Revelation, those in Daniel, um, I came to the conclusion, I think some of you are with me, that this war happens at the end of the millennial reign and matches up to uh, chapter 20 in Revelation as opposed to all the tribulation years in Revelation. Remember after the thousand year reign, Satan's released again, deceives the nations, and I think that's what's going on here, and they come again against Israel. Um, just four short verses in chapter 20 talk about that in Revelation. And so that's what I believe is going on here that we're at the end of the millennial reign. Uh, another reason I believe that is because uh, Ezekiel writes mainly chronologically through this book. And you remember the first 33 chapters, he gives time frame references. Uh, everything happens in sequence. It ends with Jerusalem being uh, overrun, destroyed actually, um, by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. And then we get into chapters 34 through 39 which I believe speak of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ being established, and then here the war at the end of the millennial reign. Everything happens sequentially, chronologically. 
Um, you remember at the end of chapter 37, before these, this war in 38 and 39, that we had the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. The very last thing in chapter 37 is Jesus Christ seated on the throne of David, reigning from Jerusalem. So between chapters 37 and 38, in the white spaces there in your Bible, there's a thousand years that have passed. And you remember, the, um, we looked last time at verses 8 and actually all the way down through 12, but I want to review just to kind of set the time frame here of what we're talking about. And you remember in, in verse 8 is the only time frame reference we have in this whole, whole war time that's going on here. And it simply says, after many days. And I think that after many days follows on the, after the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, it'd be a thousand years. So 360,000 days, I think, would qualify as after many days. And so that's what I think is going on here in verse 8. And then you remember 9 through 12, we talked about it kind of in block. This is where um, God devises evil plans that he wants to go in and plunder uh, Israel. He wants to take all their gold and silver, all their cattle that they've uh, been blessed with, and actually wants to destroy the people. And again, these people are living in a land that instead of the cities being fortified like they have been for thousands of years, there are no walls around them. They're completely open. The people live securely and, um, and they're not worried about invasion because Jesus Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem and reigns not only Israel, but the whole world. And so there's a level of peace um, simply because Jesus Christ will squelch anything that is not peaceful. Um, we don't believe that all the people in the Millennial Kingdom are believers. There are many, many people who are unbelievers, and you see them manifested here in chapters 38 and 39. I believe all the people in Israel are true believers. Um, that they, I mean, they see Jesus Christ um, every time they go to the temple, and so they um, and and the scriptures talk about them uh, being changed in their hearts. So, uh, but the rest of the world is not necessarily Christian. Don't believe in Jesus Christ. Um, you have uprisings, you still have evil, but it's squelched immediately by the reign of Jesus Christ with an iron rod. So um, that's what's going on here. And so we come to verse 13 this morning. And what we're trying to do is just kind of walk through this. And I thought about this while I was out working in my yard yesterday for way too long. But nevertheless, um, why is it that we would walk through these verses? Why? I mean, it's a war. People get decimated. Um, it's pretty um, grueling. And, and so why walk through these? And um, the, the best reason I can come up with is this is God's vengeance and anger against sinful people. And it's physical. It's um, temporal. It's in this earth. And if he would do this on the earth against people who rise up against him, what would he do for eternity against people who shame the name of Jesus Christ, who rebel against the truth? 
Um, so I think it, it frames our minds to realize that God will ultimately um, release his anger against sin and against the sinful people. That does happen. And we get it in graphic detail in these two chapters. Um, so it's worth walking through just so in our framework of the way we think about God, we have this aspect of who he is and what his character is and what he will ultimately do against sinful people. And, and, and this is nothing compared to what he will do in eternity. And so I think it, it gives us that, that perspective that is right. So that's why we're walking through it. And uh, we'll spend another probably two weeks walking through this. So in verse 13, you have some um, description of merchants that come from Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish. Now, um, these people, in verse 13, recognize what is happening. They see the forces organizing and coming against uh, Israel, so they ask the question, are you going to go in and plunder and destroy those who live in Israel? And I think it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek because Jesus Christ has been reigning for a thousand years. Now, these lands that we're talking about Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish. Sheba and Dedan would be in, most believe, what is today Saudi Arabia um, and probably down in Yemen. Uh, on, the on the water, one on the Red Sea and one on, I guess that'd be the Indian Ocean, um, that, where these two cities are. So they're not great distances, but you're not going to get there in a day. It's going to take many days to travel from both of these up to um, do trade in, um, around Israel or in the lands, probably actually to the uh, west of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. And then you think about the city of Tarshish, now, that should be one that at least you've heard of before. You remember when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, that he got in a ship at Joppa to sail to Tarshish. So you don't get there by walking. Most believe that Tarshish is um, in the land that is today uh, southern Spain. So a long way, even by ship, a long way to sail. And so these are merchants that are removed from really the seat of where Jesus Christ is reigning. Yet, he reigns over the whole world, so they know about his reign. They know about the blessings on Israel. They know that it's been going on for a thousand years. And so I think they ask the question, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, are you really going to organize to go against the ruler of the world? The one who blesses Israel? I mean, I think that's the question they're asking, because they see what's happening, and they come from far distant lands, so they're not caught up um, like Gog and Magog and Ethiopia and Cush and all these other nations that we've looked at are caught into this frenzy of going against Israel. And so they, they just ask the question, uh, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Because if he's been able to rule for a thousand years, he's probably going to continue to rule. And you're not going to be over to take him. So the question comes up, 
Well, why is it then that Gog is willing to go against what's been in place for a thousand years? And the simple answer is what Revelation says, is that he's deceived by Satan to think that he can win. Just like Satan is deceived and thinks he can win over God, so now he's deceived Gog and all these other nations that are gathered with him to go against Jesus Christ thinking that they can win because it's easy plunder. They don't have any walls and we can just walk in and take what we want and the people don't have any arms, you know. Uh, you remember way back when that the, the weapons were beaten into plowshares and, you know, it's been peaceful for a thousand years and no one expects uh, them to come and invade, apparently, is their thinking, but that is not what's going on here. You remember we came to that difficult concept of that God says he'll put um, hooks in the jaws of Gog and turn him literally 360 degrees toward Israel. And we'll see in chapter 9, he says, not only will he do that, but he'll drive Gog on against Israel. So God clearly in control. And here he is um, 2,600 years ago, uh, Ezekiel writing about what's going to happen at least 2,600 years later. So God already has this plan laid out. And we talked about the sovereignty of God. But then you have in chapter verses 9 through 12, God devising evil plans that fulfill the will of God. And so we turn to chapter 9 of Romans where you've got Paul trying to explain this difficult concept of the sovereignty of God and yet the will of men to do evil. And you remember the examples there of um, Jacob and Esau and their mother's womb and that God made a, a determination then about Pharaoh and God hardened his heart to come against him even though Pharaoh himself also hardened his heart. And when you have Jacob and Esau, Esau has the choice to do good or do evil, and he chooses to do evil. And then he goes off and forms the uh, country of Edom, who are Israelite haters for the, all of the centuries, still are today. Um, and so you have men doing what they want to do volitionally that is evil, and opposed to God, yet it fulfills the plan of God. And so you have this difficult concept to understand that while God is sovereign, he doesn't make people do evil. He uses what people do as, as evil to accomplish his purposes, but he doesn't make them do evil. He's not the, um, his plan includes it, but men act volitionally to fulfill his plan. You see that all through the tribulation years where you've got the same kind of thing going on. You see it here. You see it in people today who do evil even though they know God um, desires for them not to do evil. And God uses that to accomplish his purposes. I mean, he used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy not only Jerusalem, but all the lands around Jerusalem, even into Egypt. Um, an evil tyrant that God used to place judgment on other nations. And so this is nothing new that God does here. 
Um, and this, this war is all in the plan of God. It doesn't catch him by surprise. Obviously, John wrote about it in Revelation uh, 2,000 years ago, and here's Ezekiel 2,600 years ago, writing about the same concept. Okay, so we go down to verse 14, and 14 really goes um, all the way down to 16. It says, Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remotest parts of the north, and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly, and a mighty army, and you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. So here's God, God before the war kind of summarizing what's going to happen. And that you have all these peoples, and we, we looked at them. There's like 12 nations that are named that are all coming against Israel. So there's a bunch of them. There's a, a myriad of armed warriors coming against them. And you notice that God says, on that day. And so you go, what day? What day is he talking about? And I think it goes back to what we saw in verse 8 where it says, after many days, that day. The one that comes after many days. You'll see the same thing down in um, chapter 39, somewhere close to the beginning, I think. We'll find it when we go through it. Um, that God is talking about this day, and that day is not necessarily a 24-hour day. It's that time in future history where Gog assembles all these people. On that day, after many, many days, after the millennial reign, after that's been completed, there comes a day when Gog gathers all these people, and they're actually physically moving to surround Israel. It's that day that he's talking about. And so God has that day marked out. We don't know when it is, but God does. And so he's got a plan, and it will happen exactly as he has planned for it to happen. And so he's got a day marked out in the future when all of this is going to take place. And so... Uh, you have to remember that involved in all of this, I mean, we see the activity of Gog all through this and the people who are sided with him, but recognize always that they are deceived by Satan. That's what Revelation talks about, that Satan is released and he again deceives the nations. So they're being led by one who has deceived them. They're doing what they want to do. They're coming against Israel willingly, but they're deceived in what they understand and what they believed. And the great deceiver has, uh, has tricked them. Now, you go on to verse 17, and God asks Gog a question. 
And that question is, thus says the Lord God, are you the one whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? Now, I'll tell you, you can turn to some of the minor prophets and you'll see this war. You can turn to Daniel and you don't see this war. You see the war of the tribulation or and many wars in the second, third century BC. Um, so all of the prophecies of war that you see in scripture are not about this one. But there are prophecies in scripture about this war. So, um, I mean, just like there's a prophecy about the Antichrist, I mean, that's clear in Daniel. Uh, it's clear that Antiochus Epiphanes um, portrayed what the Antichrist would be in, in the last days. Um, and so that's all throughout Daniel. And one day, if the Lord tarries and we live that long, we'll get to that and we'll walk through that. And uh, I think it'll be clear that that's what Daniel is talking about. Um, and so Daniel didn't write about this war, but John certainly did when he wrote. And if you go to Zechariah, you go to Nahum, you'll see glimpses of this war that happens during the glory days of God, which would be the millennial reign. And so after that reign ends, you have this war. And it is spoken of in other passages of Scripture, but not in every passage that talks about war. Okay, so you have to make those distinctions as you, that's why we went through the wars, right? That there are characteristics of these wars that um, differ from one another. And if you read carefully, you're able to see those and to make those distinctions. And, um, but you have to read very carefully and you have to compare things like we did when we went through the wars. And then you can make sense of it. So God asks Gog this question, meaning to Gog, God's been talking about this for thousands of years, but you think you're clever and are going to come against Israel and destroy them. Not going to happen. And so um, in verses 18 through 22, um, you've got really the war. And it's not much of a war. It's the anger and the fury of God being unleashed against these people who come against Israel. And actually, God says his presence is on the earth. So um, not only Jesus Christ, but God the Father here coming down to destroy these troops. And you'll notice there, there is no fighting except for amongst themselves. Israel doesn't come out to do battle with them. Israel is in their cities living securely with no walls around them, and these guys begin to come against those cities. Now, typically, when you had walls or you don't have walls, the area around a city that's in this type of environment is pasture land because that's where your cattle and all graze, and they're close to you, and you can get to them instead of being far off in some field somewhere. So the area around a city would be clear. So as these guys come out onto these plains, 
that are clear, then God begins to do what is written in verses 18 through 22. And, and notice that he says, again, on that day, verse 18, it will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel. So that's the definition of that day. When God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God that my fury will mount up in my anger, in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, and the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will reign on him and on his, his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. So, God comes in his fury and anger. And the first thing that happens is that his creation shakes at his presence. And it shakes so violently that every man everywhere and every beast is shaken. That's what he's talking about. That's what's going on. The earthquake is so severe that it shakes everything. It causes mountains to crumble, steep places to fall down. You know, um, other earthquakes uh, that we see in Scripture are not quite like this one. They cause um, uh, islands to move and disappear and, and valleys to be brought up. But this one is still very violent and causes the whole earth to shake. And... It, what, the other thing that it causes, as God does this, he sends torrential rains and hail. And the troops that are coming against Israel are totally confused. They're, they, they lose their bearings. They lose what they're supposed to be doing because they're being shaken. And you got hail falling on them and torrential rains. And they kill each other as opposed to killing the Israelites. Every man's sword is against his brother. So they're killing their own people in a state of confusion, knowing that something very bad is happening. And, and then if that's not bad enough, then you've got fire and brimstone falling down on you. And if, the, if your brother's sword doesn't kill you, then the fire and brimstone are going to. And setting everything on fire, except for the cities of Israel, they're living securely, they're fine. They didn't have any walls around the city to fall, even though it says all walls fall. It's not talking about those who are around the city, because there aren't any, as we've seen in other passages. And so, out on these plains, these guys are killing each other, and they're being set on fire, and they've got hail and torrential rain falling down on them, 
causing them to be totally confused and to kill each other. And they don't kill just a few of each other. They kill everybody. There's no, according to what we'll read in chapter 39, there's no one left alive in this huge army that's coming against Israel. They're all killed, including Gog. And he's left there laying on the plains. So this is, this is like the war in Revelation, right? It's not much of a war. It's just a slaughter. And nothing happens to the people of God, but all those who are opposed against them die. Just as in Revelation, Christ is different than this because Christ speaks with the sword of his mouth. You don't see that being pictured here, right? We've talked about these characteristics. In Revelation, you don't see any fire and brimstone falling. You don't even see any torrential rain falling. You do see hail. You do see an earthquake. So these wars are not the same. Their, their characteristics are different. Different things are said, even though men on love say they're exactly the same. And, and they just say that without any reference. They're, you know, it's exactly the same. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not exactly the same. So at the end of this chapter, God gives his purpose for this war. This is always God's purpose in his plan. And in, in the last verse, in 23, he says, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known among the nations. This is what God is always about, um, is making himself known, that they'll know that he is the Lord God Almighty. And they've known it for a thousand years, but Satan has deceived them. And they think they can come against Israel and win this war, take all their plunder. But they're wrong. I mean, they're deceived. They're absolutely wrong. And every one of them are killed, and God is again magnified. You remember at the beginning of the millennial reign as we went through verse, chapters 33 through 36, 37? That was all about God establishing the millennial kingdom doing many things in the hearts and in the land of Israel so that the nations would know who he was. Well, now the nations have again been deceived. So God needs to make himself known again amongst the nations. And this is the last time. This is the war that we have nothing else except for the great white throne judgment given in Scripture. So this, in some way, leads into that. But we'll see in chapter 39, it takes years. Because it takes years to clean up this mess that has been wrought on that day when God has killed all these troops. And so at the end of chapter 38, they're all dead. They're all destroyed. There's no one left to come against Israel. And so the opening verses of 39... God summarizes what has happened. And, and you'll see that. He just simply repeats most of what he just said and adds a few things. So the first eight verses of chapter 39 are just a summarization of this war. Look at it with me. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. You remember that at the beginning of chapter 38? Look back over there. This is God summarizing. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And you remember that means, uh, instead of being Rosh as a separate nation, that means the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So God starts where he started before. And then he goes on. And I will turn you around, drive you on, on, and take you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And you look back um, at verse 4 of 38, and you see, I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out. Same kind of thing. So God's just summarizing, repeating what has already happened. And he's giving it just step after step here. I will strike your, your bow in your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I'll give you as food for every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. So they're all dead and they're all in the land of Israel. So they make it to their destination. They surround the cities. They're ready to take them, but they don't because God stops them dead in their tracks. And so they, they make it all the way into the land. You will fall on the open field, for, I the, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. And that's kind of it, right? I've spoken is going to happen just like this. We saw the same thing as he was setting up the millennial kingdom. He said, I have spoken, it will take place. And so this is God's sovereignty being interjected into the plans of men. And so he says, and I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. So it's not like this is in question. It's not like, well, maybe this will happen or maybe God will do something different. God says, I have spoken and on that day, this is what will happen. And there's no doubt about that. This is how it's going to play out. And they will be destroyed and God will be vindicated and he will be magnified and all the nations will know once again that God, the God of Israel, is sovereign and he does whatever he pleases with his creation. And he has destroyed all these people who were deceived into thinking they could come against Israel. So once again, God is glorified over all the earth. We saw it at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. Now in this war at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, same thing happens again. And the deception of Satan is done away with. And this is his final deception. This is after the millennial reign. This is just before he's thrown into the lake of fire. And so 
it plays out exactly as God said it would. I mean, we see it in Scripture. We see God then coming behind it and summarizing it and saying, I am sovereign and this will happen exactly as I have said it would happen. So this isn't questionable. You know, um, there are a lot of people who think that both Ezekiel and Daniel were written in the 200 BC and that they didn't actually write it and there were uh, imposters who were writing. Not true. None of that garbage is true. These were written after Nebuchadnezzar took Israel in the early um, 600s and the late 500s BC. And this is, Daniel, this is Ezekiel giving the word of God to the people of Israel in captivity in the land of Babylon. And this will happen exactly as he has declared it would. So it's a horrendous thing. But you see the judgment of God and the anger of God against sinful men unleashed and there's nothing that can stop it. When God says something and he's written it in his book, it's going to happen exactly as he said it would. As uh, Ephesians would say, before the foundations of the earth, God had a plan. And this is part of the plan. So next time we'll try and Finish chapter 39, you'll see it takes um, seven months to bury all of the dead. It takes seven years to burn all of the weaponry and the armaments that come against Israel. So at least for the next seven years after this war, Israel's cleaning up the mess. And so we'll see that um, as we go through this. And then we'll come again to that passage at the end of chapter 39 that can be very confusing because it makes it look like it's not at the end of the millennial reign but we'll talk about that again and um, and see exactly what is being said there so thanks for your time we're done for today